Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Zach Tromley and I am your host forever. This is the very first installment of the Franco-Dutch War, so if you're lucky enough to have this as your very first episode, then congratulations. A small reminder, in fact, a good few reminders before we begin, though. The first is that When Diplomacy Fails, the podcast you're listening to right now, is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Speaking of the Agora Podcast Network, perhaps soon after this episode is released, we are doing a roundtable discussion on the Peace of Westphalia, purely because I'm that influential. Everyone thought it would be a good idea to go back to 1648 and see what else we can learn from it. Of course, I can't claim full credit for it, but this episode is being recorded about an hour or two before the actual roundtable discussion begins, so I also can't tell you it went super well or super bad, because I don't know, but I'm sure it went great. So check that out, I'll let you know when it becomes available, and then you can hear what other people, other podcasters hear about the Peace of Westphalia. Perhaps they even disagree with me. Okay, and another piece of housekeeping. T-shirts! That's right, I'm never going to cease bothering you about t-shirts. Go to www.wdfpodcast.com and click on the t-shirt banner or go to historytees.net and look for the podcasts tab in the bottom left-hand corner and begin shopping. If you order them now, you'll definitely get them in time for Christmas, but if you wait too late, then shipping itself may fail. When Diplomacy Fails t-shirts are soft and lovely and a great way to advertise my baby. So if you can't think of what to get, that would be history friend. A When Diplomacy Fails t-shirt is by far the best present they could ever ask for. Even if they never even asked for it. Okay, so I think I'm kind of taking the piss at this stage, so we should probably get started. I'm really excited to finally begin the Franco-Dutch War with you guys because it's been a very Long time coming. Thanks and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the world of season three. Having just asked the wonderful question of whether the Peace of Westphalia was overrated or not, and before that having covered the Second Anglo-Dutch War, 
I'm so excited to bring you guys to the next and arguably the most fascinating phase of the entire series. Over the next 20 or so episodes, since there's no point in me promising to deliver these wars in small numbers anymore, we will be examining the lead-up to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672, the war itself, how and why it widened to include the near entirety of Europe, and under what circumstances it eventually ended. As a conflict, it was profoundly striking, not just to the enemies of Louis XIV, but also to that Sun King himself. It demonstrated firsthand the results of war, not to mention its costs, the necessary sacrifices that had to be made for it, and the benefits which could be accrued from it. By the time the war had ended, nobody could deny that Louis XIV commanded a central position in the geopolitics of the continent, while they also had to accept that the war was the manifestation of the French king's ambitions, ambitions which could not be quenched unless the borders of France were secured, its glories increased, and its power supreme. It is a critical tale in the history of early modern Europe, and one which, in case you didn't know, I've been looking forward to sharing for quite some time. So I hope you'll enjoy it, and let me know your thoughts through the usual channels. I will now take you to the immediate aftermath of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, where one British statesman in particular had begun to see his entire world crumble down around him. If our credit be so well built, so firm, that it is not easy to be shaken by calumny or insinuation, envy then commends us, and extols us beyond reason to those upon whom we depend, till they grow jealous, and so blow us up when they cannot throw us down. Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon Were you to look at the career and prospects of Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon in summer 1667, the term scapegoat would almost inevitably come to mind. Opposed to the war with the Dutch, depressed at his homeland's economic overextension, committed to King Charles II on a personal and professional level, and horrified at the experiences of his country over the previous years, where war, plague and fire decimated the once enthusiastic populace of Britain, Clarendon was nonetheless singled out as responsible for all that had befallen Britain during its time of war. London was a fairly grim place to be in, in late July 1667, only weeks after the peace with the Dutch, French and Danes had been signed, and before long the blame game was being played just as eagerly as efforts to rebuild London were underway. Charles certainly relished the opportunity to recreate London in his own image, more than he enjoyed the chance to throw Clarendon under the bus, but Charles would refrain from helping his loyal servant, and would play a role in urging the long-serving minister to leave the country for good. 
So, what had gone wrong? Was it even fair to blame Clarendon so heavily for what had occurred? Would it not make more sense to blame the likes of James, the Duke of York, or his Anglican royalist compadres in the Royal Adventurers, African Company? The truth, as per usual, was not as simple as Clarendon simply being selected for blame after the war. The war had been an expensive, then an underwhelming, then a disappointing, and finally a dangerous and humiliating experience. But the seeds of Clarendon's downfall had been sown for some time. As was the usual custom, the Lord Chancellor was not merely a victim of his own mistakes, but of the intrigues of his political and court enemies, who campaigned for his removal, and naturally coveted his position and power. And power was something Clarendon had come to possess in abundance by 1667. Ever since creating such a solidly royalist reputation during the Civil Wars, Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon, had been attached to the young Charles II as his guardian when the latter fled to Jersey in 1646. Clarendon then accompanied the young prince to France, and took some time out to write his own history of the civil wars, as Charles agitated to secure his position on the throne following the death of his father in 1649. Charles's campaigns in Scotland in the early 1650s failed, and although Clarendon had been horrified by the execution of Charles I, to return to the continent, not Britain, and gather his resources for the moment. The presence of the wiser statesman in the form of Clarendon was some comfort to the grief-stricken and beleaguered young Charles, who tasked Clarendon over the next few years with building up a catalogue of pledges, allies and monies that he could eventually use to return home. Clarendon was sent to Spain on such a mission in the mid-1650s, the results of which caused the previously mentioned agreements between Philip IV of Spain and Charles II to come about. Though such agreements would end in frustration, Charles felt indebted to Clarendon for his service, and by 1658 had made him his Lord Chancellor, essentially his First Minister, though, seeing as that office was perceived as a French device, the term itself wasn't actually used. Clarendon was thus well positioned to take up where he had left off when Charles was restored in 1660. By then, it had largely been accepted that Charles would defer to the now veteran Clarendon before making a move, and the wily minister urged Charles to establish a more active privy council as well, which would advise Charles from his chambers and form a predecessor to the cabinet governments seen over later centuries. Appreciating the importance of getting his regime back on track, Clarendon opposed any risky foreign ventures, such as wars with any European powers, and advised Charles to traverse the tricky landscape of European diplomacy through the use of his own personal relationships and conciliatory policies. This approach mostly worked, though Clarendon couldn't stop Charles or his brother James from investing their resources in suspect companies designed to undercut Dutch markets and surely increase tensions between the two countries. Clarendon at least had the benefit of a privileged relationship when it came to Charles's brother. His own daughter Anne had married the brother of the king, making him the father-in-law of the potential next king of Britain if Charles were to die without any heirs. Historians have long since debated whether Clarendon intended at all for the marriage to go ahead, since it caused such a scandal as Clarendon and his family were merely commoners. 
Yet, James refused to back down, and when it became apparent that the young Anne was already over six months pregnant, the source of much court gossip was complete. Charles regarded it as a mostly good thing that his favourite Clarendon should be made closer to the family by law, but the incident provided the first major scandal of Charles's reign, coming as it did in the first year of his restoration. On a side note, though James would father many illegitimate children, and though four of his children with Anne would die in their youth, two significant daughters would survive into adulthood. These were the ladies Mary and Anne, and both would wear the crown during their respective lifetimes. Which means that Clarendon the commoner ended up being the grandfather of the future kings and queens of Britain. The year 1667 was the year that the proverbial axe fell on Clarendon, but it was a combination of factors that saw him go. With his daughter married to the brother of the king, court jealousies were already stoked from an early stage, but because of the history between king and statesman, which went back to Charles's early childhood as we saw, Charles increasingly depended on Clarendon in the early years of his reign for advice. This position of power inevitably granted Clarendon many benefits. He was said to have amassed countless riches over the years, and his critics tended to associate his wealth with whatever rival had fallen out of favour at the time. For example, when Clarendon began building his palatial house at Piccadilly in London's prosperous centre, his opponents whispered that the house had been paid for with the proceedings of the unpopular sale of Dunkirk to France. When the house was finally finished during the war with the Dutch, it was said that the war was going badly because Clarendon was sabotaging it. Under what motive, you may ask? Well, because, in an agreement unseen by anyone else, it was believed that in exchange for the sabotage, the Dutch would pay for the fancy furnishings of Clarendon's house. Well, whatever Clarendon's inability to pay for his own house may have said about him, it also suggested that his unpopularity went deeper than mere jealousy, though the opening quote of this episode echoed what he believed actually brought about his downfall. All that was needed was a true political rival determined to oust him, and the next thing he knew the First Minister could be fighting for his life. Clarendon had not had to worry about such an eventuality, because he had made himself indispensable to the king over the previous years, but in 1667 this all changed. It was in this year that Charles finally had enough of his advisor. For so long, Clarendon's moralising regarding Charles's rampant and very public affairs had been brushed aside as the words of a man out of touch with the new ways of the court. Charles's court was renowned for its sleazy ways, but a growing pressure group headed by Clarendon and utterly opposed to both the behaviour of the king and the favours he granted to his mistresses, was beginning to gain ground. Clarendon was able to find traction with his urgings, after years of deaf ears, thanks mostly to the growing acceptance of the British public, of Queen Catherine of Braganza, Charles's Portuguese wife. Though she had yet to bear Charles a son, or any children for that matter, and though she had arrived in Britain a Catholic with no English whatsoever, her popularity had climbed gradually over the years, and she soon resembled the ideal queen, a reserved, conservative, pure and dutiful picture. She was completely unlike the culture of Charles's court, 
and this was perhaps why she had come to strike such a chord with the more conservatively minded populace. She was by no means adored, but she had certainly settled into her groove by the time Charles began to tire of Clarendon's repeated words of warning. Charles, to put it simply, was tired of being told who he could and couldn't sleep with, but more than that he was tired of being told what to do, and longed to shatter the widely held belief that it was Clarendon, not he, who truly directed the ship of state. Charles's impatience with Clarendon's moral code, with his haughty style and increasingly pompous attitude, had thus reached a boiling point by the beginning of the year of 1667. Charles's lack of patience or time for his old friend was exacerbated by the worsening war with the Dutch, as well as the glaring fact that Clarendon was not as useful as he had once been. Charles had long been able to offset his adviser's tiresome pressure with the fact that he could depend on him to force certain measures through in Parliament. Yet he had lately come up short. Clarendon failed to persuade London's influential city councils to allow Charles's vision for a rebuilding of the city to go ahead after the fire, but Clarendon also failed to halt the passage of the controversial Irish Cattle Bill, which would have blocked the import of Irish cattle to Britain completely. Ireland was economically dependent upon the export of its cattle to Britain, but influential farming factions existed in Parliament, hailing from North England and Wales, who resented the competition and wished to remove Irish beef from British markets. Irish beef was just that damn good, and still is if I do say so myself. Charles was naturally irritated at the agitation for the bill, because he recognised that without the proceeds from the cattle, Ireland's economy would be in an even worse state than it already was. The Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, an old friend of Clarendon's based in Dublin Castle, was already forced to pay for his soldiers' levies out of his own pocket, with promises from Charles that he would eventually be reimbursed. How would Ireland cope if cattle sales were removed? This miniature crisis in beef had been headed by the Duke of Buckingham on the pro-bill side, who mobilised his rich farming friends and claimed that the Irish were critically undercutting the British in their cattle sales. Buckingham's allies won the day, and the bill was passed, impoverishing both the Irish people and the British crown that would now have to support the Irish even further. Charles was outraged, and the bleeding over of this issue into 1667, right when his patience was at its lowest, caused him to blame Clarendon for the entire affair. Despite this failure, Clarendon still tried to maintain his hold over the King's Privy Council, and still insisted on using only the most expensive materials for the construction of his fancy house. Coupled with the complaints of his other courtiers, though, Charles began to steadily lose his patience. When it was rumoured that Charles's latest love interest had been pawned off by Clarendon to another gentleman out of his concern for the king's morality, a charge Clarendon vehemently denied, but which Buckingham gleefully confirmed, the Chancellor's days seemed numbered. A shift in the mood had clearly come. In the past, the king would have gone out of his way to defend Clarendon. The fact that he was now willing to believe such rumours demonstrated how far the statesman had fallen. In the backbiting world of court politics, the faltering of Charles' support meant that blood was in the water. Once the sharks circling Clarendon smelt it, it was only a matter of time before they went in for the kill. As it happened, this kill was made remarkably easier, since only a few weeks after stewing in his own juices, 
the Dutch attacked up the Medway and shocked the nation. In an atmosphere which cried out for a scapegoat, it seemed only logical that those around Charles would select the alien Clarendon for the role. Thanks to his shortcomings, it finally seemed unlikely that Charles would jump to his defence. By 1667, Clarendon was ill with gout, an ailment that was worse during the cold weather, and it was while he was laid up in bed at the beginning of the year that his enemies moved against him. Above all, Clarendon's enemies at court aimed to, if not take his position, then at least divide the powers he held amongst themselves. They were mostly led by Buckingham, but that duke was so regularly in trouble with the law and was seen as so unstable in his reckless pastimes that Clarendon's rivals didn't necessarily follow his lead, though they did take encouragement from his example. Buckingham, for his part, seemed to have been immensely bitter towards Clarendon after the latter's repeated criticisms of the young duke's behaviour. I say young duke, but by now the once youthful duke was reaching his early forties and is almost universally described as getting visibly older and puffier. With Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Age. His alcoholic antics and the wild nights clearly catching up to him. Puffy is one of those words that just throws up a whole range of negative images and connotations, much like jowls, both of which Buckingham was said to now possess in abundance. If the histories agree that the Duke's visage had lost some of its healthly vigour, the Duke himself is also universally portrayed as having lost none of his energy or ambition. Out of favour by the beginning of the year for another silly episode, Buckingham returned to court mainly through the pressure of his peers, most of all Barbara Villiers, Charles's steady mistress at this point, with whom he had many children. Barbara was Buckingham's cousin, and she regularly pleaded with Charles to forgive or forget Buckingham's tomfoolery, a request which Charles more often than not adhered to. Despite his antics and how bad they made the court look, 
The king never really took the damage they could do seriously. He got on mostly well with Buckingham, and seemed to have been either too preoccupied or not sufficiently fussed to have seen the duke's behaviour as anything other than amusing. Once he'd let him suffer in silence for a few weeks, the king generally welcomed Buckingham back with forgiveness. Wynne is compelled to remember the scene at the Restoration, where a returning Charles and family saw their coach be nearly hijacked by the Duke of Buckingham, who leapt onto it. At that point, Charles and Buckingham were not at good terms, in 1660 that is, but such a lapse in friendship was the longest both men would experience. Once Charles was back on the throne, Buckingham would rarely be out of favour for more than a few months. This elastic forgiveness meant that Buckingham became rather valuable to certain individuals. His close relationship and history with the king enabled many peers to throw their lot in with Buckingham, which by 1667 meant throwing their lot in against Clarendon. If Clarendon's year began badly with illness, it was further worsened by the loss of those he treasured most. His aforementioned daughter Anne and his son-in-law James, Duke of York, had six children, but only two daughters would survive till adulthood. This pattern began with a startling devastation in May, when two of his grandsons suddenly died, followed at the end of the month by his good friend and secretary at the Treasury, the Earl of Southampton. Southampton was Clarendon's closest political ally, and when Charles made the decision not to replace him, but to appoint a Treasury committee and fill it with all of the courtiers that Clarendon loathed, the man's situation was made only more intolerable. Now, only the Earl of Ormond remained as a political ally of the old school. Ormond was in fact the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland we encountered earlier, who had paid the salaries of many an Irish levy after the damaging Irish cattle bill had been pushed through. Since 1660, Ormond had been trying to put Ireland back together after the ruinous civil wars and Irish rebellions, but arguments over land, a stagnant courts system, and a sheer want of any kind of funds meant that the beleaguered Ormond had to depend on his own connections in Irish society, personal loyalties, and his own checkbook to get the job done in Britain's troubled backwater. I have lost a friend, a fast and unshaken friend, and whether my only friend or not, you only know. So said Clarendon in a message to Ormond immediately after the death of Southampton. Clarendon was not blind to his own unpopularity, and it seemed that he indeed feared that some kind of move would be made against him. To prevent this, he had to consolidate his old allies and influences. The so-called old school of statesmen, who had known Charles as advisers since the king had been a boy, and had been appointed to positions of administrative power because of their history, were gradually thinning out, to be replaced with Charles's childhood friends like Buckingham. Clarendon noted this trend, but was emphatic that he had not done sufficient wrong to the king to provoke a political backlash against him. The trends may be worrying and his rivals many, Clarendon accepted, but so long as Charles held him in favour and he remained indispensable, no move against him by the sharks would be made. This false sense of security, considering what we've already seen regarding Charles's slowly slipping perception of his first minister, was to lead to Clarendon's ultimate downfall. Clarendon had never been totally in favour of the war with the Dutch, and was even less enthusiastic about the war widening to include France, 
but he was largely powerless to halt either Charles's desires or the ambitions of the Anglican royalists, who spearheaded the move towards war. Clarendon was mostly pro-Dutch and anti-French, though these attitudes could change from time to time. The former attitude was a result of his living on the continent alongside Charles for many years, while the latter anti-French attitude stemmed from Louis XIV's claims on the Spanish Netherlands, which Clarendon knew represented a dangerous precedent for the powerful French king. If the nations of Europe could not mobilise to stop Louis XIV's drive towards the Netherlands, then France would become immeasurably more uncontainable than it already was. Charles offset his Chancellor's concerns by the maintaining of a warm personal relationship with his cousin, the King of France, despite the two going to war against each other. Once the Dutch sailed up the Medway and Charles had been so dramatically embarrassed by the wily Dutch, Clarendon may have hoped that his own opposition to the war would excuse him for taking any blame for its poor handling, but in this he was dangerously mistaken. Attesting to the fact that Clarendon held all the cards in Charles's intimate privy council, Buckingham and his allies could claim that, even if Clarendon leaned against the war, owing to his power in office, he still should have and could have done more to bring the war to a more successful conclusion. The Anglican Royalists and their ambitions, not to mention the rapacious companies they set up and directed against the Dutch in the first place, were conveniently forgotten in favour of the single, convenient and now thoroughly unpopular scapegoat, Clarendon. Clarendon's richly built palatial house at Piccadilly was roundly upheld as the cause for the failure of the Dutch war, since, of course, he had constructed it with Dutch bribes so it was perhaps unsurprising that it soon became a target for those less fond of the Chancellor. Trees in its gardens were cut down, graffiti was plastered on its garden houses, and more infamously, the Chancellor was forced to hire his own security against break-ins or to protect him from any of the rabble that may get too close in the street. Rumours spread like wildfire amongst a populace outraged at the recent losses in the war and amongst a court eager to take the place of a man who had clung on too tightly to his power for too long. Clarendon was adamant that he would stay, and when it was said that he would be pressured into going by a parliament, who were supposedly planning to impeach him once everyone returned from the summer break, his extended family rallied around him. Just at that moment of crisis in mid-August 1667, Clarendon's wife died. Charles even visited to offer condolences, but the gesture did not signify a turning of the tide. By late August, Clarendon's daughter Anne, who was also Charles's sister-in-law, was pleading with the king to protect his long-serving minister from the campaigns against him. All Charles could do was advise Clarendon to hand over his seals and leave the country before proceedings could be brought against him. If it were a legal issue brought before Parliament or the courts, Charles warned, then he couldn't be seen to interfere on Clarendon's behalf. The minister would be on his own, or face the wrath of every vengeful and ambitious courtier and statesman who had either felt held back or offended in any way by Clarendon over the years. Even by late August, when Charles was beginning to despair that a very public trial would be in the offing, Clarendon refused to leave. He stayed put on the honest but also rather brave grounds considering the circumstances, that he had done nothing wrong. On the morning of the 25th of August, 1667, while Clarendon was in his private room at Whitehall, 
Charles and James entered into a meeting with Clarendon, alone. When Clarendon saw them entering, he almost immediately went on the offensive. What had he done wrong that Charles could be so cold and severe towards him? Did he not see the threads of conspiracy around the beleaguered minister? Did he not realise that his old friend needed help? After all they had been through together, Clarendon pleaded, did Charles not think enough of their friendship to speak for him? Clarendon's later account of events recorded that Charles affirmed his belief that the old minister had always served him honest and faithfully, and that he did believe no king ever had a better servant, and that he had taken this resolution for his good and preservation. The atmosphere grew from concerned to stern, as Jenny Uglow in her book, A Gambling Man, notes. James demurred, huffed and contradicted, but Charles talked on. If impeachment began, he insisted, Clarendon would be no more able to defend himself against Parliament than his father's minister, Strafford, had been all those years ago. Whereas if he went now, Charles could at least guarantee his safety. The mention of Strafford, who had been impeached and executed after Charles I signed his death warrant in tears, was a clear warning. Presented in this way, Charles made it sound like he simply couldn't fight the sharks that called for blood. They needed a scapegoat, and Charles was unable to deny them what they sought any longer. Clarendon had lost or alienated his old friends. He had been undermined for years by younger, more ambitious circles of courtiers, and their recent depressions meant that somebody had to pay. It wasn't personal, it was merely the business of state. To this, a now enraged and most certainly traumatised Clarendon insisted that to give in to Parliament would weaken the Crown's position yet again. On the verge of losing his temper, Clarendon then made the mistake of jumping to criticise the all-too-easy target of Charles's philandering. Barbara Villiers, Charles's long-term mistress and socialite, was loathed by the Chancellor, and the feeling was mutual. The stinging attack which Charles had heard all too many times from the Chancellor was the last straw. The King got up and walked out of the room. Upon this display, Clarendon understood that at the very least he had lost this battle with the King, but he was determined to win the war. Clarendon's tenacity explains why, even though he lost Charles's favour, he refused to pack it in. Charles had sent a messenger to collect the royal seals from Clarendon at the end of August, but Clarendon sent that man back to his king empty-handed. He simply refused to go. Over the month of September, Buckingham was restored to his former positions, and also to the Privy Council, where Clarendon had once reigned supreme. Now that his arch-political nemesis had the ear of the king, was in favour in the Commons and had staunch supporters in the House of Lords, Clarendon seemed more isolated than ever. On the 20th of October, Buckingham and his allies attempted to bring a motion thanking the King for allowing the dismissal of the Chancellor, only to be told that Clarendon had yet to resign. Worse than that, with his back against the wall, Clarendon was using all of his connections, all of his acquired political and legal skills, and all of his energy to fight against the notion that he should resign at all. Charles was more and more outraged as October wore on. His old Chancellor had not gone quietly as he hoped, despite every warning and approach made to persuade him to. Faced with Clarendon's insolence, Charles felt he had no choice but to march ahead with the impeachment proceedings, approving them on the 20th of October, 1667. By early November of that year, Buckingham and his allies had drafted 17 articles attesting to Clarendon's guilt, 
with accusations that ranged from collecting bribes on the sale of Dunkirk to divulging secrets to France. Clarendon wrote an impassioned letter to Charles, urging him to stop the proceedings and insisting that he was innocent of all charges. Charles reportedly burned the letter on a nearby candle as soon as he read it, a symbolic gesture indicating in the plainest terms that he was utterly done with his old friend and mentor. In the final act of kindness, in his mind at least, Charles sent some friendly bishops to Clarendon's house to persuade him to leave the country. Clarendon argued that he was still too ill to simply uproot and leave the country in a hurry, and that he would need the guarantee from Charles for safe passage if he went, since all he possessed now was a vague understanding from the king that if he would run as fast as possible away from him, Charles would not follow. On the 20th of November, Clarendon learned with a certain satisfaction that the House of Lords had refused to issue a request for his arrest, and that some members had struck down a number of Buckingham's articles of impeachment made earlier in the month. The old Chancellor, it seemed, still had some friends where it mattered. Yet, though this last denial of ultimate justice frustrated Charles to no end and grated on Buckingham, it was a delay of the inevitable rather than a turning of the tide. Though he had friends in the Lords, Clarendon simply didn't have enough allies elsewhere and couldn't answer either to the ambitions of his peers or to their resentments for having monopolised the first office for so long. On the 30th of November, Clarendon saw his allies one last time. By the next morning, he was on a coach for the coast, and three days later, he was in France. Louis XIV, it seemed, did not much care for the exiled statesman, and allowed him to live out the rest of his days in the smaller but still considerable lodgings in Rouen. Clarendon spent his remaining years finishing off his histories of the civil wars, and maintained a correspondence with his daughters until his death in late 1674. He never once gave up the hope of returning home to his old master. So what can the tale of Clarendon teach us about the aftermath of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, or of Charles's developing character? Both aspects were connected, for the war had taught Charles the need to have a greater control over his own affairs, be they foreign or economic. Clarendon's reimagining of the Privy Council as a controlling body responsible for much but answerable to the king started off well but grew to irritate Charles. Parliament's control was stifling enough, but with the Privy Council managing affairs, Charles felt far more hands-off and controlled than he would have liked, and he regularly made Clarendon aware of his dissatisfaction. For a time, Charles did put up with the strange institution of the Privy Council, and stomached it almost out of affection for his old mentor, but his patience couldn't last. In Antonia Fraser's seminal biography of Charles II, the author noted other motivations for wanting to do away with the suffocating council, which had been Clarendon's brainchild, noting that Charles would have liked to have freed the privy purse, the source of his personal expenditure, from the overlordship of the exchequer, and equally to place the Irish seal above the great seal, so that Irish affairs and money could be handled by him directly when necessary. Other accounts describe Charles as simply wanting to grow up and form his own policies, without the influence or presence of an experienced politician advising him on what to do or not to do. 
much like what Louis XIV would do when it seemed as though a French statesman was attempting to style himself as a successor to Cardinal Mazarin, Charles wanted to end the practice of having strong first ministers hoarding control over affairs. Charles, like Louis, wanted to rule in himself, even though both men ruled over very different monarchies. But Charles's personal preferences went hand-in-glove with the developing cabal of ministers, courtiers and friends of the king, who for so long had jealously watched Clarendon hold all the cards, and now wanted some for themselves. Charles found these men more pliable, more agreeable and generally more like him in wit and style than the stuffy, stubborn and pompous Clarendon, and one can imagine that the near 40-year-old king justified the transition in government as part of his own personal transition into a more confident adulthood. It was to Clarendon's misfortune both that he did not sense the change in Charles's tune sooner, and that he did not appreciate how wary Charles's contemporaries were of the king's growing eagerness for change. The results were that, before he had time to plot for himself or gather allies, the Duke of Buckingham was there with guns loaded and friends aplenty, while Clarendon remained almost consistently isolated. The final blow would not have come if not for the Dutch War, that much is certain, and Clarendon may have retired with more grace and calm had the national disaster recently endured not been in such dire need of a scapegoat to cleanse the realm of its bitterness and hopefully distract the populace from the litany of problems, failures and blunders which had characterised it. Though the conflict with the Dutch resulted in much suffering for the sailors and soldiers that fought in its battles then, perhaps the most significant casualty of the war was Charles's old friend, mentor and long-serving minister of state. With Clarendon gone, a new generation of statesmen would be free to take the helm, armed with their own ideas about how the state could best function, and who the state should fight next. Viewing the international situation, Charles had to concur that he would require all of his peers' talents if Britain was to formulate a foreign policy which did not create another national disaster. Perhaps, after seeing his ally go into exile once more, Charles was reawakened to the fact that the patience of his subjects would only go so far, and that after years of controversy, war, plague and fire, his people were but one disaster away from sending him back to the continent from which he came. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 